0: Thanks for listening.
1: For earlier access to these episodes, access. to ask me anything sessions and extended breakdowns of historical and current events, please consider joining our warning premium community by clicking the link in the description to this episode. Very pleased this afternoon to be joined by Beaumont Jones, a award-winning sports journalist. Welcome. Hey, man, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. You bet. So, but, Monty, we think in the country today, you you look around a lot of a lot of division in America. Uh, people are at each other's throats. Uh, trust has collapsed in nearly every major institution uh, that you can think of. But sports still has the capacity to unify people. It
2: does. And what is interesting, though, about that, and I think you hit on a really big one with trust. And I've been thinking about that a lot. Like when I was in graduate school um, at Claremont Graduate University, the first thing they really touched on when I got there that I wasn't like truly expecting to think about in terms of economics. was just kind of the importance of trust and like the people have to trust institutions in order for them to be able to function. And then once they believe that they don't, then all bets are off. And I think that there's a quaintness in a way to sports where you know the bottom line is very easy to understand. Conceptually you get it. We know what is and is not fair. But on the other side, you know, these are billion dollar businesses that are also uh plagued by a lot of the rot that we see in a lot of the other places. And so what's happening now with sports and particularly the coverage of it as much as anything else is trying to keep everything on the field as much as possible because that's the place where the cynicism is lowest. But we're also trying to get you to do that while advertising gambling to you at every turn, which is the moment that you realize that this is not all fun and games. So I think sports are really in a lot of ways at a tipping point right now, at least in terms of the way that the public views them. And I think that's in large part where I think an example of what I think people need to worry about and what we talk about here with trust is that sports fandom among younger people is declining and being a fan of sports fundamentally requires a lot of belief. And if we are at a time where belief is at its lowest, and that is something that I think the sports people have to be very, very concerned about is this, this great macro level fundamental idea of belief. And if you think it doesn't affect this world, I think they're wrong. I just think the creep is going to
1: be a little bit slower. Talk about that. What, what is, what do you mean by belief? What does it mean to believe in a team? I'm a, I'm a New York, I'm a New York jet fan. So I um I think I know what you mean because I, I believe every 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 late summer this time that they're gonna be in the Super Bowl, even though I know they <laughs> never will be. Right? I guess that's belief. But what do you mean by belief? Well, I think it spreads into it a few different directions. Like I really got to thinking about this. I was watching
2: um Bret Morgan's David Bowie doc, Moon Age Daydream, um, that was running on HBO. And it starts with this uh quote, I think it's a quote from Bowie, but it gets into this, the idea that Everybody gets to a point where they realize that nothing really matters. You have to decide why it is that you are going to continue to pursue in this world. Now, I would make the argument that maybe there's not an objective standard for something that matters, but everybody's got something that they believe that they matter, that they believe matters. But you could almost look at it somewhat like we to a degree arbitrarily pick these things that we're going to put our faith in. That no matter how many times We get disappointed by something. We still lean in on something like it's something that, of course, is huge Is religion is an example of this. Right. If you ask people to tie it to something logical, it probably falls apart. But that misses the point. People need that thing to believe in and they choose that the ethos that surround in the mythos that surround those religions are going to be the things that they believe in. With sports, I think part of it comes down to believing in teams and just this idea that one day it's going to get better. That's why Jets fans keep coming back every year for Lucy to pull the football on them, right? It never matters, never fails, but you keep coming back because for whatever reason, you've chosen that you want to believe that this thing is going to work out. I also think that if we took belief and, and looked at it in a broader sense, that the belief in kind of the principles and fundamentals of like things that sound corny, like fair play and the likes. I think that for a lot of people, it's important to believe that those things matter that much and that sports are the reflections of those things. But if you get to a place of cynicism where you don't think anything's actually going to work out, then getting into sports could be a little difficult because that's so much of what... It's what keeps people around. It's what stops it from simply being, oh, I'm watching this thing because it's on, to being something that people like choose to invest their time and resources into.
1: There was such a red line growing up. Um, I'm 52 on gambling and sports, right? It was away from the leagues. Uh Pete Rose. I mean, you look at you look at society, American society, I mean. You look at Trump, the one guy that there's no forgiveness for. Death penalty forever. They even let one of the Manson killers out of out of prison. But Pete Rose <laughs> banned banned for life. To what degree do you think sports in America risks really becoming the front, the facade for the gambling industry? And and how how do you process that when you think about it through the prism of faith and belief, like you just, just talked about? Do you do you think professional sports is heading towards the iceberg with regard, to, with regard to gambling? You just had uh a player uh betting on betting on games that he was playing on. Uh he won't be the last one, I suspect. And I wonder what you think happens to sports and to the integrity of these games over the over the medium and long term
2: yeah like we haven't had the giant gambling scandal yet Right. Like we've had these stories like what popped up with the state of Iowa doing its investigation and finding the players that Iowa and Iowa State had gambled. But the most disturbing thing in that was that a kicker for Iowa was betting on the under. For people who don't participate in sports gambling, there's a number for that you can bet on for total points that will be scored in a game. And you can pick if it's going to be over or under. The kicker who exists at the margins, right, three points at a time, one point here, three points there, all of this stuff. Betting on the under, you can obviously see the conflict that is created by this sort of thing. And I think that what the leagues are hoping for as it relates to the integrity and it goes to players and the likes, is that there will be such a level of monitoring because there is regulation that they'll catch anybody who engages in it. And therefore, the threat of being caught will then prevent people from engaging in gambling. Now, maybe that argument will work for a certain class of professional. But college students are the single dumbest people on the face of planet Earth. There are other people that are dumber than college students, but they got just enough reason to believe that they're smarter than they are while also still being stupid because they're at the incredibly stupid age that the chances of somebody getting in over their skis and everything that can come from that. It's so right there and it's so readily apparent that at some point you're going to have some things that come up like you had in the 1950s where people are going to have like giant gambling scandals that come. Now, does it take us toward an iceberg in professional sports? I think it's something that needs to be considered, right? I don't know. And I can't, I'm not, I'm not so sure that, oh, this is the guaranteed ending of this, right? I got some other things that in different areas, I think might be that, but I definitely think it's something that they have to be concerned with. But the reason I think they have to be concerned with it is that nobody came here for the gambling. Right that like once you get into sports, you find out that gambling is there, and then maybe that you know becomes the way that you want to engage with the product. but the things that have always appealed to people about sports have nothing to do with gambling, and so treating the average sports fan as though he is a gambler, if it is a to walk the person into gambling or b because you legitimately believe that fits the profile of the person who is consuming the product. I don't think that's it. Right. Like um, Mark Leibovitz wrote a book called Brand NFL, which I think is a really good one for anybody to check out to understand the way the NFL has sold itself over decades. And the one thing that the NFL found was when they wrapped themselves in the flag, people loved it. Right. That is why the NFL, above all the other sports, I mean, granted, also part of its outdoor stadiums and all this, but all the flyovers and all the military stuff and everything else that's heavier in the NFL, they lean in on it because they found that it was great for business people believe in America right like red white and blue and stripes and everything else those are the things that people believe in and I think that is an example of the way that sports at its most successful and popular is wrapped in belief now the way those that the flag and all those things is applied in sports that's an entirely different discussion, but I think it speaks to the fact that people want something meteor around it to give it a feeling of significance. And gambling does not feel significant. In fact, the whole point of it is that it is not significant, except the problem is once you go too far, it gets really significant really fast.
1: Why why do you think when you talk about the flag in the the NFL, why do you think it is in this country that when black athletes took a knee, um, you can look at, for example, the protest at the 1968 Olympics, during the playing of the national anthem with the black athletes who had uh one um one gold and silver who were standing on the on the podium and i'm not I'm not recalling their names right now. What yeah, Tommy Smith and John Carlos. What what struck me about this protest cycle in in this moment in time, there was not one person not one corporate leader, uh, not one political leader who went out and explained that in this country, we have something called the First Amendment. And that allows every citizen, of which those athletes and players are, to protest. Now, personally, what, what I would have said is to an athlete that Martin Luther King understood that he marched under the American flag, he rallied people to that cause because people do like their country. It's not great in terms of bringing people to your cause, but uh, you're making a point, you're protesting, that's your God-given right, and nobody talked about the values and the ideas and the ideals That the flag is supposed to represent in that in that moment. Just a complete desert in that. What what do you what do you make of that? Yeah, that that whole time to me was very
2: interesting. Like as I was observing it, you know, starting with Colin Kaepernick and everything that happened after that. And really what I think extends into 2020 and George Floyd and the reactions that you saw there, where you saw the players actually get Roger Goodell even though it looked like a hostage to make a video and say that the NFL opposes things like systemic racism and everything else. Right. Like it was a really interesting epoch of time that went together. But I hadn't thought about it until you said that. But you're absolutely correct that no corporate person came out and said such things. The closest you got was Nike, but they were doing that to sell their product. Right. Like they felt at that point that it was good, good for their branding. And I think. Corporate thinking typically is to not offend. Right. It is rarely to like fully assert something that isn't obvious, Um, like uh, a writer named Jimmy Israel used to make the point that there's nothing to say that you want justice because that's like saying you want ice cream. Everybody likes ice cream. Right. If a corporation believes at any turn that somebody is going to be offended by something. Then they have been conditioned to absolutely fall back off of that completely and it's interesting because we think of these titans as industry titans of industry as being the most influential people in our society but in effect they are still afraid of what the outrage machine is and it doesn't even take that many people being outraged it just takes some and i could never figure out during the kaepernick situation like that was a process that began with me changing the way that i interacted with people online Because I started looking at the people that were responding to me and I couldn't tell if they were actual people like it felt like the noise was being amplified artificially in such a way where to this day, I don't really know how many people were really that mad about those things. How many people were truly that angry, but the NFL believed that this was a losing matter and all of these corporations believed that it was a losing matter and they did not want to be kind of I guess proto Bud Light in a sense that they would be the company that they felt like people were walking away from right there, but. To me, what it spoke to was kind of the veneer of the idea of the corporate conscience, where I think in line with what we talk about in trust and belief in this society, that we don't seem to be enforcing the standards upon people like we have a a baseline of behavior that we think that people are supposed to engage in. But if they fall short on it, if they're on your side, you kind of let it slide, right, instead of demanding that whoever it is on your side or whatever it is, get up to that point. And nobody seemed to demand that of the NFL to just say like, hey, look, this is how these players are choosing to deal with the national anthem or handle it whatever term that you choose to use. The league very easily could have stood up in defense of them. But honestly, they were terrified of Donald Trump. And I think that that may be the answer to the corporations in so many cases was that period of people being absolutely petrified that the president of the United States will send a tweet about it. And everything goes to hell from there.
1: Do you have a sense with black athletes who are in their 20s and 30s that they feel called to activism, to raise their voices in the moment, in time? Has that settled back down into what i would call the michael jordan i guess the michael jordan ethos right of sports and marketing it was business i i still have no idea what michael jordan's politics are I mean, you could hold a gun to my head um <laughs> i could right i i have no you know i have no idea and i mean he's been front and center in 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 the country in my life for you know for a lot of it um do do you you know the the athletes that you know the gen z athletes the younger athletes that are coming up um you know different than the millennials are they are they gonna be activists are they what what makes them tick Yeah, I think
2: that it is settled some and I think that something we need to remember about athlete activism is that it is typically reflective of the activism of the times. And I think that we can kind of look at a sort of ebb and flow um, for America's appetite for for, um, activism through the second half of the 20th century, where you have, you know, you get this apex in 1968 where everything seems to be on fire and then you get the much more hedonistic 1970s, which then turn into the, this absolutely craving capitalist 1980s. Um, and I think what happens is after a certain point, people get exhausted because taking on those fights really takes on a lot of energy. And particularly if you have a lot of money, you can look around and ask yourself, what am I accomplishing? What am I doing? Does my life have to be this hard? The question to me becomes, will there be some sort of flashpoint that comes up that stokes those fires in the way that really Trayvon Martin is probably the first one to really poke things in 2012 in this country with athletes? And we saw the building movement against the 2014 with Mike Brown um, in, in its own way. And Kaepernick obviously winds up being connected to that. But I think that what we're seeing now is kind of a natural fall that comes. I think COVID had a big effect on how much energy, like energy is a finite resource and so how much energy people had for those things what worries me about the coming class of athlete and this is black white anybody else um is that the money in sports is so big right now that these players are being molded to be stars at a very 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 young age like and it's funny because i was talking i did something on this, about this on hbo where um there was a school a place called overtime elite that's kind of sort of school, not really, but it's like a basketball warehousing place for teenagers before they go to the next level, and they give them media training, and I'm like, maybe one or two of these guys will ever actually need media training, right? They're not going to be star basketball players by and large. That happens to so few people, but the world for these guys is being molded toward them being professional athletes, corporate pitchmen, and all of those things And that doesn't really create an environment where I think you get the worldly understanding that is necessary to truly have opinions on these things. I think a lot of these guys have these moments in their late teens, early 20s, perhaps where they realize there's this whole world that they hadn't been exposed to. And then they try to get into it. And then they're kind of like very few people can be autodidacts and teach themselves these things. But they're on their own. They want to figure this stuff out, but they don't necessarily know how to do so. And so. What I hope for the next class of athletes, and this one now I think will be an interesting test case, is we got to start making sure that kids of all stripes actually know something about the world. Because after you get done playing this stuff, or no matter what it is, the world's still going to affect you. And I just don't know how many athletes are going to have the awareness that's necessary to really apply themselves in those places because the people who are surrounding them are not there to build worldly beings. They're there to build athletes who can make money for people.
1: I was on the um <clears throat> had a podcast uh yesterday a uh, congressman Alred from Texas he's running against uh, Ted Cruz played in the NFL um with the Titans and we were talking about his uh career ending injury and he was on the he was on the field he had a neck injury and he said in the moment he said he knew that was his last play NFL career was over and um we were talking about that moment on the field and and I said, well, what were, what were you thinking? And he said, my only thought was, I guess I'm going to law school now. And uh, he did. And he got elected. He got elected to Congress. He was, um, we talked about his character. He's very much an optimistic guy. And I, I don't think that you can be laying on an NFL field, having reached that level, knowing you just played your last play. And you're focused on what comes next, right? That's a genetic thing. Um, you're you're hardwired to to be able to be able to do that. And he talked about his life, and he was a guy who never never had a father, uh, raised by by his mom, didn't have a lot of money. and he, and he said football uh, was really the formative character. Uh, development experience in his life he said all the things I've accomplished in my life none of these things would have happened without football and you talked about the disconnection between younger people in sports in terms of fandom in terms at some levels some sports participation but but how important is sports for character development for young men and women How should we think about it as a society? And are we breaking that character development aspect of sports as we've traditionally understood it with schools and the marketing where each kid is the next Michael Jordan to be, or at least that's what's being marketed to the parents, right? And, you know, the professionalization of all sports, not just at a college level, but, you know, pushing it all the way, all the way all the way down do you ever do you ever think about those issues and those oh
2: yeah absolutely because we youth sports in particular a friend of mine many years ago called me and told me that her little brother who was in high school in houston at the time he was going to be playing on espn because his high school had a game that was on espn espn is showing this game on television because his team and the other team both had big recruits on them but i assure you just about everybody else on that team had no business playing football on television, right? Like they're out here for fun. Like this is the cool thing to do in high school. That is what sports is supposed to be on the youth level. And then there are these outliers who exist, and then they go on to other levels. But the purpose of this on the youth level really is about teaching things like character and discipline and all of that, or at least most optimistically, those are the like perhaps most noble purposes of youth sports in that way is to teach those things. And I do think that those things are important. And I think that the more that I've been around sports in a professional capacity, there are a lot of criticisms to be made of football players. And there are a lot of criticisms to be made of football. But I will say this, if all of us cared about our coworkers as much as football players care about their co-workers in the midst of performing a task, this world would be a much better place like there's no disputing that there are elements of like learning how to properly navigate group dynamics, like learning where you exist in a hierarchy and all those types of things. There's no denying that sports can teach those things as well, if not better than most things can. And there's a real positive value in having that. That's a big part of why the push for women's sports is so important because these values, which I think people associate a lot of ways with traditionally with men and masculinity, well, women, particularly as women then entered into the workforce, need these skills also. And so like to deprive the opportunities to be in those positions, to learn those skills the same way creates an incredibly unfair disadvantage. So I think these things are huge. And I do think that these things wind up getting lost because what's so wild to me is watching how many people are in youth sports for wins, right? Like when you look and you see kind of the reality shows and then you see all these guys who are coaching youth football and you realize they're doing cosplay right? They're doing the cosplay of the professional coaches because the idea of being a coach confers a measure of authority upon you in this society. And now you get to be that guy, right? Like they're out there like the coaches we knew, wearing the hats that are all misshapen and wearing like wearing the funny looking shorts and everything else because they get to be in charge, right? Like they are now, you now get to be Nick Saban. You now get to be Bear Bryant. You now get to be whoever that person is. And that is putting the interests of adults in their dreams over what really is something that just should be good good for kids like i am amazed personally by how many people i know who every weekend are getting in the minivan or the suv and driving every weekend to go participate in some sporting activity for their kid and i'm telling you that kid is never going to make a dime playing any of these sports there's just no way in the world there just aren't enough spots but everybody's pushing their kids so hard in a way that i think completely misses the point that Yes, there's something to be said for developing the discipline and everything that comes from being really good at something. And, you know, all of, you know, I don't want to act as though there's nothing to it, but it still feels a lot more like adults trying to live out their dreams vicariously through children in a way that I do think
1: is ultimately destructive. I think it's, I think it's beyond crazy. In fact, I opted out of this with my kids. I moved to a ski town. And so (laughs) they, they skied, right? That was, they were on the mountain constantly. They were, they were in the mountains, but I went to the Taylor Swift concert last night. I took my took my daughter. And so a couple of observations from that. Um first, um, I don't think I've ever been anywhere in my life at age fifty two with more women. Um sold out to the rafters, you know, eighty five, ninety thousand people. No way was there ten percent or less men. Right. Um, know the words of every song people are going crazy um, these women i mean they love taylor swift but the parents in the in the crowd with the little girls as a general proposition aren't sending those kids to taylor swift camp they're not <laughs> telling them right that you're going to be up on the stage, uh, selling out SoFi Stadium, right? It's, we don't, you don't seem to, a lot of kids play instruments, right? Pick up music, right? It's part of the curriculum, right? We want sports in schools. We want music in schools, but we're not telling every kid, right? That you are going to be some superstar, uh, a once in a generation type performer, But we, but we have made this, and deeply ingrained in our culture when it comes to sports, right? I mean, the only yes. the only thing we haven't done is assign the kid an agent when they when they enroll <laughs> in their kindergarten, right? I mean, yeah. it's... Well, it, I think the other part about that, which to me it gets to be interesting, is that sports
2: really used to be the ticket to college, right? And that was the big thing for a lot of people is that, you know, in an era where we had so many people like GI Bill to go to college, like all the things that we think about that, you know, generations before us did to go to college sports was a great ticket for that. Like one of the theories that people have about the declining interest in uh, baseball among black people is that youth baseball was a ticket to the minor leagues as opposed to a ticket to college, right? You know, so like, this has always been that was where it went. Then it became okay, but you can get to the league and we treat like getting a college scholarship to play ball is almost like just the beginning or something like that. But the math on this is really bad for people, at least in terms of playing the odds. So we have more professional sports teams than ever. We have more professional sports jobs than ever. There's more money in professional sports than ever. And we also have more people chasing after that same dream than ever it is no easier or no less of a long shot to make it and have a professional sports career now than it was when there were eight teams in the NBA and 12 teams in the NFL, right? Like the numbers may be a little bit off, but in effect, right? The deltas on this are very, very small. I just don't think, I just don't think it's any easier, which makes all of this expenditure feel like even more of a fool's errand because I don't believe the purpose of this is just to get your kid a scholarship because there's so many other ways to do that that have less competition in order for you to make that happen. And that push, I just don't, this stuff isn't that important in that way, particularly when, and this is the thing that breaks people's hearts when it gets to the end, all that training, all that work, everything else, still nothing matters more than the natural endowment of physical talent, right? What's actually gonna get you to the league is still not something somebody can teach you. Somebody's going to look at you and think, "Do you have the physical capabilities to do this?" And if you do, they're going to be the ones to teach you.
1: Yeah, no, I mean that's right. It's and if you if you stand on an NFL field, which you which you've done, and I've had the experience because I've had NFL clients in my in my career, and you watch them on a field, and you see a guy who's six foot seven, who's pushing three hundred pounds or slightly bigger and he's faster than anyone you've ever known it's a, it's incredible They're just astounding people, athletes it's you can't
2: yeah I tell people you think NFL players are doing it. NBA players are way bigger than people realize too like you just be amazed at what giants they are and I laugh when you said the thing about them being faster like all those guys you think are fat are so much faster than you like yeah. every like all those 40-yard dash times if somebody has a bad 40-yard dash it it'd be like five and a half seconds and everybody laughs at them and i am here to tell you that big sloppy dude with that gut would dust you dust you even if you think you're in good shape you're not beating them like they are they don't they are just next level human beings like it's the, it's a very nietzschean Ubermensch sort of concept like this seems to be the next step in the human evolution and you're not gonna you're not gonna become that by playing a lot of football on the weekend. It's just not gonna happen.
1: No, it's it's definitely not. Let's talk about golf because I think golf may not make it um, in the sense that the PGA Tour in the post Tiger era, in partnership and owned by the Saudis, I will never, uh, and I mean never attend another pga tour run by the run by the run by the saudis and i've seen a lot of them i'm a i'm a big golf fan and i i don't think golf fans um are going to go for it this was one of the more and you know
2: i don't have a real pollyanna streak in me about this stuff right i'm fairly realistic about things but the idea that the Saudis were able to leverage this how they did using a brand worth literally nothing, right? The the brand of Live Golf isn't worth a single thing. You couldn't parlay that into a TV deal. You couldn't parlay that into any brand sponsorship, nothing. anything else. It was worth nothing. And they turned that into control of the new golfing super alliance, whatever it is, where they run the board and then the guy that's the front uh the front man for the PGA is going to be the front man for this. And I am curious to see how a lot of fans and players ultimately respond to it. They abused the trust of a lot of their players and had them stand out there on in the name of principle when in the end even if they had to fold because they couldn't win, you know, sustain the legal challenge financially. They put a lot of people in a really bad position and made their word look useless. And it is, I think, going to become more difficult for them to sell that tour. And I think they're going to be people who have a lot more questions about them and what it is that they're doing after this has happened. What I'm curious to see about this, though, is are the Saudis planning to stay in the background on this and just hope that as long as they're not around and nobody's looking at them, nobody thinks about exactly what it is that has happened here. And I guess that's going to wind up um, being the play that they make. But I can't think of an organization being honestly more embarrassed and more humiliated than the PGA Tour was by the way that they allowed people to take what was theirs with nothing, nothing. And I I have also been surprised, and I'm curious your thoughts about this in terms of the coverage of it. You didn't really see many, many media reports that said the Saudis bought golf, but it sure felt like they did right? Like everything in terms of what the power structure was going to be after the fact. I was like, so this isn't a merger. They bought. They they just bought the PGA Tour. But I never saw, I saw very few people who were willing to come out and explicitly state that. I saw a lot of people that kind of shrugged their shoulders cynically, like, oh, well, I guess that's what the money says. But I don't, I don't, I just could not believe that
1: happened. I think, Um, I think it's really interesting. And I think there's going to be a lot of a lot of uh, chapters still to be written on it. What, one aspect of it that no one's really reported on is that there's an argument to be made under the rules as Robert Mueller applied them with foreign agent registration. If you're a PGA Tour player, and, and this certainly applies to the commissioner, um, but it may also apply to the to the players, to the American players, you may need to register as a as a Saudi agent um and be a registered foreign agent to play on the PGA tour, because certainly the Saudis own the league to enhance their reputation internationally, right? The, re- the league is functioning at at some level as a propaganda arm of the Saudi foreign ministry. and And that being the case, if you were to apply the apply the law evenly, that would fall under that would fall to the athletes. if you if you're paid by the Saudis, hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars a year to really, in essence, um, speak for the Saudis, play for the Saudis, represent and front for the Saudis, you're a Saudi agent. And so I, I, I think that, um, you know, certainly, you know, these cultural, um, you know, these cultural totems in our country, right, the power of American sports, the power of American culture, music, Um, You know, they want to get their hooks into these things. I'm sure they'd love to buy a baseball team, you know, um, if there would be a rules change or an NFL team. And so I when you look at foreign ownership of clubs and, you know, we'll see in the years ahead. Um, But I'm curious what you think about the propaganda element of it, because we did something on
2: Game Theory on HBO um, in our last season about, you know, this is before everything had happened with the golf tour. But does that actually work? Like, you know, the, the Chinese spent all the money to have the Olympics twice in a span of 15 years, but it doesn't make anybody look at them any differently necessarily. Like, I always wonder when these attempts are made to legitimize themselves through sport, where I'm like, I don't think this is doing the job that you think it is.
1: No, I I don't think it succeeds in the sense of, right, that the Saudis now, because they have the PGA Tour, right, that You know, all of a sudden people view the Saudi regime as good or noble or not despotic. What what I think it does is it ends their isolation. It gives them a power and a currency and allows them the ability to control uh, and lever against criticism that comes their way. Right. Because Well, If you look at uh, a mass execution, which happened, you know, a year or so ago, right, they beheaded 87 people in a day or, you know, a gay person is stoned to death or whatever, whatever atrocity has happened. Washington Post reporter, you know, that's chopped up. There's going to be a lot of reluctance to make criticisms of that. And you see that uh, in the in the NBA um regarding regarding china you know where you have a lot of people who are outspoken on a lot of issues um but will not talk about um will not talk about the chinese and really that's that's what you're buying with that
2: yeah and see so, yeah, the, the nba is in a what i would term somewhat unique situation with the china thing because unlike the nfl like the NBA is America's only truly global league where they need to get this money from around the world. And they have a product that's more attractive in more, more places. And it just so happens this place that has one billion people really, really, really likes basketball. What always gets me about what is it? Well, it's interesting to me when the Chinese thing comes up is it can often feel as though it is wielded as a weapon to get people to stop talking about the domestic issues. Right? Like I think, every everybody's got something that they're into and everybody's got something that they're not the nba itself though as a league has not figured out how they're supposed to deal with the chinese situation because it's a little different for them like when you take it to the players that's one thing but when you make certain ethos um central to the image of your league and then people ask you about china you got to have better answers than the ones that they come up with but i do think that you're correct that what happens is i think I talked about byu football in these terms and simply in the sense that byu football is the most public representation of the church of latter-day saints when you really think about it even for people who don't realize it but what it did is it gave people something to point to about the church that is not in line with where in most of the country people view mormons as other right, right? you know like i'm not making any judgments about them at all right. to be clear but Absolutely. in the ways that people perceive them is a very other sort of way. And BYU football was nor like it, it was, it was, it was the thing that you could point at and be like, yo, this is us and this is not all this other stuff that you're thinking about. And I guess for the Saudis and many of these groups, they hope that that will be the case. But it's easier for a smaller institution like the Church of Latter day Saints to do that than a whole country with, <laughs> with history that we could all go look up that affects geopolitics. I I I they're going to do it and I guess they'll get something that is out of it and I also think a lot of it is rich people who want to be treated like all the other rich people especially since a lot of them are richer than any other rich people that they want to be respected by
1: really rich people really really rich Really,
2: I mean rich really to the rich point people. rich to the point where a lot of what they're doing in sports is honestly cuz you got to do something with the money
1: right well have have we lived long enough to see soccer take off here in a in America? Is is soccer Major League Soccer officially in orbit now with Messi arriving here? Well, what's so interesting to me about Major League Soccer is like when we think about the sports, like basketball, is a great example. The sports we watch in
2: this country, and you'll hear about somebody playing in the Italian league, right? Or they right. go, or they play in France okay, that's what our soccer league is, right? It's one of these other leagues where, yeah, you can go play soccer all kinds of places. You could even go to America. Um, But I do think that it has arrived in the sense that what soccer probably needed to give the sense of arrival was the more fragmented media space and that you didn't need to show these dominant, overwhelming numbers to get people to believe that you existed. Like there is a real appetite for soccer in this country. Um, The technology now makes it that people can access the most elite, levels of soccer and watch the Premier League and everything that goes on in Europe and all of these places. They can get online and they can watch them. And then in the United States, so if you live in Portland, for example, you can take your kids to go watch a soccer match. It'll be entertaining. You can watch it. But the interest in the game is absolutely here. What we have is a second or third tier league in this country, but that's okay, right? Like it doesn't have to be as big as the NFL. And I think that what had often happened with soccer was the comparative cases for them were just too outsized. And it's just like, oh, well, it's not as popular as baseball. OK, well, that's not going to happen. But now there's room, I think, in the zeitgeist for things that are not as like like you don't have to be Michael Jackson famous to be famous anymore. So there's room for something like that to exist at the level at which it exists. And it'd be cool and people have access to it. Nobody's ever I don't think anybody other than like a guy like Messi, for example, is going to make like 20 million dollars a year playing that level of soccer but i do think it is here i do think that it is here to stay and i do think that it's a worthwhile product for us to have in the country just so people can have a place where they can go and watch soccer in a professional setting without having to get on a plane you know get on a concord which they don't make anymore but you know what i mean right
1: yeah i i remember i mean i remember this so well i was 9 years old when pele came right to play for the mm-hmm. cosmos and that was and then and then the next summer that was youth soccer right they they started up right you could sign up for soccer no one had ever played soccer before North Plainfield, New Jersey, before <laughs> before Pele arrived. And, right. you know, there's a big difference over, over 40 years in this country with regard, to, with regard yeah. to soccer.
2: Well, I think a big thing that happened with soccer, too, is people figured out, wow, what a great way to tire these kids out. Right? right? Like, I remember <laughs> we moved to Houston when I was seven years old, and we would just see all those soccer fields. This is the, the late 80s, and we'd see all these soccer fields just filled up and in atlanta where we lived previously we had never really seen that before and it was it's a it was a really good activity to engage your children in if you wanted to but the problem was it was very clearly also being done to price a lot of people out of it so it would only be certain people's kids playing against Mm -hmm. those same certain people's kids just that they're living in different houses but now i think also with the increase in the latino population in the country um we have seen that the interest in this is just way bigger than it ever was and i i think the 94 world cup of course was a big step in that and people i think just i think what a lot of people needed to see and i think this was a big thing for me and i'm not a huge soccer fan but i did need to see soccer played at the highest levels to understand why it is that people were really into this
1: i i feel exactly the same like i never i never got it didn't really like it. Didn't appreciate it it at all, right? Uh, until I saw it played at the highest levels, and then and then you get it, right? And you think about it, right? Yeah. If you only if the only football you ever saw was high school football, right? It's, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's right, the, right. It's not the same.
2: I tell you this though: I went to Madrid last year, and I went to a Real Madrid match, and. I had placed way too much on this soccer match because the only soccer I was watching was the World Cup, the biggest right. matches in the world. And I was there watching a regular season soccer match. And don't get me wrong, great displays of athleticism. But I just put too much in my head about it. Like, this was not going to be the World Cup final because they only make one of
1: those. When When we think about sports and how people will watch it, Over the next over the next 25 years, I was I was having a conversation on on this subject uh, with, with someone in politics. And this is this is an astounding statistic. And they didn't believe it when I told them. The number of plugged in cable households in America is now down to the same level it was in 1991. Oh, wow. Right. So. People are unplugging. The one thing we know, right, is that once you unplug shit, right, it's never getting plugged back in again, right? That doesn't, you know, whether it's your VCR, right, your Blu-ray, it's gone, right? So people, people are not, not going to have cable. These companies will not have the carriage fees. Um, what happens to sports television? What does it? What does it look like? How do people watch sports in the next ten to fifteen years? How does it? Where does all of this? Where does all of this go? Well, that's a great
2: question. As somebody who spent the better part of the last twenty years working for ESPN, it doesn't work for them anymore. I can tell you that question is confounding a lot, a lot, lot of people. the The one thing. At least in the short term, that they still have going for them, and this is one thing I think about people are unplugging cable, but especially for like watching sports, cable is still a superior product um it's still faster, it's still more stable, like I don't really like watching sports on digital platforms. I'd much rather watch it on cable, but I also speak from a level of class privilege in that regard. I can afford blow to blow the money on cable, not everybody has you know has the ability to do that. The question for me is going to be. How do how do all these streaming platforms like how does that market wind up shaking out? Because this is all going to go to stream. Like, I think we all recognize that we also recognize it is not going to be sustainable for people to have all the streaming apps anymore. Right. Like eventually, eventually all this stuff is going to look like the cable bundle. It's so funny. Like I tell people about like that week and a half this app clubhouse was hot where people were doing like live shows, you know, on their on the app. And a group of people had gotten together to do a rendition of the uh, Broadway version of The Lion King and people reading parts. And it was absolutely riveting. And it dawned on me, guys, we're watching the radio like it's 1935. You guys think you invented something. You just invented listening to the radio. And somebody's going to pop up and invent the cable bundle because the only way for people to have all these channels and be sustainable was that. And that sort of thing, I think, is going to be necessary when it comes to sports, because what happens is enough people generally and men specifically watch sports that espn was able to charge that ridiculous carriage fee that they did because there might be some man in that house or this woman might have some man over one night and you got to have espn over there for him to watch or whatever it is and so it stayed there for people who weren't actually watching it most of the time but then a big game comes up and it's this thing and everybody crowds around and then we go but for the sports to work i feel like in the broad in you know the sense of being distributed I don't know how exactly they're going to be able to do that to proper scale while keeping up the sort of money that everybody's been making through the television landscape because people just can't figure out how to make that kind of money off of the internet so I am not exactly sure how it is that people are going to watch it somebody's going to jump on it if for no other reason than it's the most attractive live viewing property going. It's basically like the only thing out there that you got to watch when it happens. It just doesn't work if you don't watch it live. And they've got to figure it out somehow. I just don't know how they can do it sustainably at the money that everybody's making right now. And you and I both know, this is not about how much money you make. It's about how much more money you make than you used to make. That is what sustains these operations.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. 100%. I got into this conversation with my wife um, talking about golf, um, talking about the Saudis, and we were talking about Tiger Woods. And I said, there will never be another Tiger Woods. And she said, well, you can't say that. And I said, no, I can't. I said, "There there will never be another Tiger Woods. And in fact, I don't think there will ever be another person in my lifetime that I get to see who so completely dominates their sport at a level of almost superhuman excellence. And I was, I think that he's, he's the top. Like for me, when I, when I think of athletes over my, my lifetime, there are, there are two guys that, that stand out. One was Bo Jackson, just absolutely singular. And I, I tell my kids who are 17 now, they'll say, this guy, that guy, so there's no, there's only one Bo Jackson and Tiger Woods. Yeah,
2: those are Bo Jackson. I got a Bo Jackson bobblehead up top of um, on the on the bookshelf back there. I am with you on Tiger. Like Michael Jordan is in that space also. And so I think, in terms of like the magnitude of personality, like there'll never be another Michael Jackson again, for example. There'll never be another even Britney Spears. I can make the argument like it's just kind of hard to be that singularly famous or nobody knew was going to pop up that exists in that space. The thing that made Tiger so incredible versus, say, a Bo Jackson type is you looked at Bo Jackson and immediately knew the other kids can't do like before you even saw him do anything, just see him walk in the room. and You're like, yo, you don't look like the other kids. Tiger Woods, like phenotype notwithstanding, didn't look any different than the rest of those guys. Like it wasn't like he was just endowed with these obvious physical gifts that these dudes had. But that 97 Masters was the truest example ever of, oh, he's playing a completely different game than everybody else is. And kept that up for basically about a decade and took a sport that never really had a lot of mass appeal and brought it to people it's not because they cared about golf but they understood that this was greatness at work and this guy was so much better than everybody else and i i do not know if there will ever be a case that we see somebody who from almost day one like it wasn't literally day one but it was from nearly day one he showed up and nobody was anywhere near him even if they tried to change all the stuff with the courses you guys still couldn't catch up to him
1: 1997 the whole country stopped and watched the masters that weekend yeah it was incredible look i remember this that sunday for the final round i uh i grew up
2: uh, in northwest part of houston uh suburban area and there weren't too many black people in that area and so um there was a group, uh, like a group for kids, you know, we get together on the weekends, do some stuff, get to know each other, all this. And I remember we had our meeting that weekend, that Sunday. And the thing that somebody said to begin with was, all right, we got to hurry this up so we can go home and watch golf, which I assure you had never been said before at that meeting. And I feel like (laughs) there were a lot of other meetings. There was probably some Bible studies, like, you know, how on Super Bowl Sunday, everybody rework, rework the church schedule. I bet it was a whole lot of stuff like that because Tiger Woods was just that singularly captivating.
1: Last thing I wanted to ask you about today, not every day you see a, coll- a collegiate athletic conference completely collapse. What, what's going on? How do you explain this to a casual sports fan, you know, about what's going on in college sports right now that's that's driving this? This is you bring it back to the beginning of the conversation on faith and belief. Right, it's a 105, 110-year-old institution. Um, gone. Yeah, the the entire college
2: sports landscape is devouring itself in hunt of television money. And one thing that is interesting, by the way, when you hear about the money that we're talking about these schools getting, and you'll hear things like, well, they're going to this place because they'll get 30 more million dollars a year i'm not saying that 30 million dollars is a lot of is not a lot of money i am saying though 30 million dollars in the scheme of a college budget is rounding error in a lot of places like this money to me is not nearly as substantial as people make it out to be that they're making these decisions in the name of but what has happened is there was a lawsuit in the mid-1980s that gave the rights for televising games to schools The schools then wound up in many cases, and actually now almost in every case, the schools turn those rights over to these conferences of which they are members, and the conferences sell the television rights, and that's where everybody gets all the boatloads of money. All right. Well, television landscape has changed a lot over the years, and at every turn, the larger conferences are trying to find a way to basically strengthen their television package. Meanwhile, The members of these smaller conferences are looking at how much money they are or are not getting from their television packages. And now they want to go to conferences where they feel like they can get more money. Now, what happened in the Pac-12 was in 2009, I believe the year was the Pac-12 hired a man named Larry Scott to be the director of the conference. The reason they hired Larry Scott was because he had experience as a media uh, executive and they thought that he would be the right person to negotiate their television deal. He did a terrible job negotiating their television deals, blew their expenses out of the water by doing things like moving the conference to San Francisco office space because he wanted to be involved in Silicon Valley and had the conference be seen in that light. So all these schools were in the Pac-12 and they looked around and they didn't like the money that they were getting. And then USC and UCLA, based in Los Angeles, looked up and the Big Ten was like, we'll give you guys more money if you come over here, because for the Big Ten it becomes more attractive to have the Los Angeles television market in their TV package. And now they can sell it for more money. USC and UCLA do the reverse Beverly Hills 90210 and they go back to the Midwest. Now, the rest of the Pac-12 looks around and they say to themselves, well, we don't have the LA market in this anymore. This conference looks like it's on the verge of collapse. And now we're in your classic game theory prisoner's dilemma. Everybody would be better off holding the line and staying together. But they're all freaked out, so they're all going to panic and bail. We saw Arizona, Arizona State, and Utah decided to move to the Big 12. Oregon and Washington decided to go to the Big 10. And something that's very important about when schools move to the Big 10, that's the conference that a university president wants to be a member of. That's the one, like, that's the room they want to walk around because they have the Big 10, unlike the other conferences, has an actual academic pedigree and profile. And so what was the Pac-12 last month? People looked around and it's now the pac four. They literally have four schools. What's happening as a result of this, at least in the way that I look at it, college football is rivalry based. It is provincial, right? This is not a very sophisticated thing. It is for people in small areas to argue with each other about their state. They go to work and they can snip and snipe about everything else, but this is not a national game. The interest in it is by and large, People who care about their schools, who will never have a chance to win, forget a national championship, would never have a chance to win a conference championship, but it's fun to engage each other like that. And every Saturday, go out, barbecue in the parking lot, go inside, do your cheers and everything else. But it's by and large, just a good time. The money had just gotten so big that all the universities have gone and chased it. And what I think is going to happen is you're going to end up with a product that doesn't have charm and personality. What it becomes is a slate of television, uh, games to put on television. That's what it is. The TV networks need inventory. Well, we got these games. Okay, we'll put these games on, and the games will be on, or people will make money because they'll be on, but I think people are going to care less than they ever have before. So yeah, the longer the short is, schools try to get as much money as they can, and we all know how tenuous group dynamics are, and there you go.
1: You know, I it's interesting when you... When you're talking about this, the the voter in American life, the fan in American life, um, they're on the short end of the stick on a, on a number of different ways. And we live in a country um, where if you give the people something they don't want, uh, you hear from them. Uh, before before very long. And I think that's what's driving a lot of the tumult, a lot of the chaos in the in the country or these disruptions in these change and really a sense that no one is looking out uh, for the little guy. And that shattering of the social compact, I think, is bleeding in some ways, you know, at some levels into sports. Um, yeah. and you're seeing it manifest because all of this occurs in a in a broader culture. And it's one thing that people don't get about politics, right? It's that the culture doesn't flow from what Ted Cruz pronounces, right, in Washington, DC. Politics is downrange, right, of culture, right? And so so your politics is a function of that, just like sports, just like music, movies, everything, everything else. And yeah. money it- has always has always been um has always been uh the golden calf in this country
2: and the american sports fans a little different than say the european sports fan because let me tell you something this stuff that's going on with college football now please understand people in other countries can't understand our college sports system right. it's that it's that nonsensical they can't they like... come
1: married to a canadian right you can't it's not <laughs> you can't even you can't explain it to a canadian right yeah it's they not... just sit
2: there and look at you like what do you right. mean like none of it makes sense right but i tell you this: if France had college football and all this stuff was happening. People would be in the streets right now. Like the American sports fans. just kind of like, oh, well, I guess we just got to take it. Over there in France and something like this happened with the soccer team, they would be outside the offices right now. When they tried to make that Super League in France, those people in, in, you know, in England and all that, those people took it to the streets and they shut that down. Here, we just going to take it. They're just going to look up and be like, oh, well, I guess things are different now. We watch what we watch whatever yep. the game is on
1: is the one we're, one we're watching right yeah maybe even bet on it i guess <laughs> right maybe even bet on it uh thanks for spending some time this afternoon appreciate ah, it good to be with thank you, you steve thank you steve man i appreciate you having me on my pleasure